Welcome to the Army Talent Management Podcast, where we explore how the Army is optimizing its human capital management practices to develop a ready, professional, diverse, and integrated team of trusted professionals that are prepared to fight and win in a complex world. Talent wins, and winning matters. Good morning, and welcome back to the Army Talent Management Podcast, a podcast that is produced and maintained by members of the Army Talent Management Task Force. I'm today's host, Major Delaney Brown. Today we will be talking about how commanders and hiring officials can achieve the best possible outcomes for their units and movers in the assignment marketplace. The Army Talent Alignment Process, or ATAP, is the Army's assignment marketplace. It was first rolled out in fall 2019, and it allows officers to see all of the positions available in the market, and units can see all officers available for movement. Three years and some 30,000 movers later, we as an Army have learned a lot about how participants can use the system to build better teams. There are best practices emerging around the force for resumes, interviews, and ultimately preferencing. No one in the Army knows that better than today's special guest, Brigadier General Curtis Taylor. General Taylor is the commanding general of the National Training Center at Fort Irwin. Previously, he had commanded the 7th SFAB, oriented in the Indo-PACOM area of operations, and 1st SBCT at Fort Carson. He also served as the director of the Commander's Initiative Group at Fort Leavenworth, focused on the development of innovative approaches to talent management and later development across the Army. General Taylor has given a lot of thought to the theory and practice of talent alignment, so we're especially grateful that he's agreed to share his thoughts with us today. Sir, welcome. It's a pleasure having with us today. Uh, I'd like to begin, if it works for you, to begin with your experiences. So what have you learned about hiring teams since you first did this as a brigade commander in 2015, then as an SFAB commander in 2019, and now as a CG at NTC? Yeah, uh, Delaney, first, uh, thanks for having me on. And this is just a great opportunity to talk about, you know, really um, what it what has changed. And, and I think, as I've said to your team before, this is the most important innovation that we're seeing in our Army. And as we talk about modernization, this is more important than hypersonics. This is more important than, uh, you know, our innovation in cyber and, and everything else that we're doing to develop a modern Army. We have to, if we're going to compete um, and continue to, to dominate in the 21st century, we have got to get serious about retaining our very best um, and continuing um, to work hard uh, to, um, to earn uh, those recruits in our organization. So y- you highlighted kind of three points in my life there, BCT Commander in 2015, SFAB in 2019, and now uh, the National Training Center, CG. Um, those three events kind of span the transition that we've made And so I'm going to talk a little bit about how, uh, what I've learned in in the process here. I'll be honest with you, as a BCT commander, people were an external resource that was provided by the Army. So uh, I hope the Army sent me great people. Um, I was very interested in uh, field grade hiring, of course, and I was a part of the the debate and the discussion among my fellow brigade commanders about who was going to get the the best folks off the division staff, and, and, and we were all trying to, you know, poach the best talent we could. Um, but it was really kind of a, a commodity. Human talent was a commodity that was delivered to us by the Army, not something we had to fight for ourselves. When I went into the SFAB, uh, I had the unique challenge of standing up the organization. When I was assigned to it, uh, there was six people, me and the, or seven, me and the other six battalion commanders, uh, and then we had to grow it into a full uh, formation of 820 leaders. What I learned in that process, and this was right as the AIM portal was coming online, Um, is that you have to earn every recruit, um, and you you have to work individually, one at a time, to find that talent. Um, What we found was was less than productive, was the large group, 
you know, where you bring, bring a bunch of people in together, you throw a bunch of PowerPoint at them, and then hope that you get the right kind of people in out of that organization. What we also found is that while incentives matter because they speak to priorities for the Army, financial incentives communicate um, a, uh, a, that something is important, um, what, uh, uh, what you're really looking for is people come to your organization for the right reasons. Um, and so as we moved into the hiring process really in full force uh, in, um, in late 2019, uh, we realized that what we were really looking for is people who were coming to our organization because they were excited about our mission and they were excited about how they could contribute uh, to our team. So as I've moved into the National Training Center here, uh, we tried to take that same approach. We're working on a, uh, some uh, incentive programs that we have here uh, to encourage people to come to a remote and isolated installation uh, like the National Training Center. But really what I'm looking for is people who are excited about our mission and, ha and excited about contributing to our team. Yeah, sir, it's interesting to hear you describe it that way because we certainly talk about we need monetary incentives to draw talent or, you know, to you, to Fort Polk, you know, Fort Bliss, that, that somehow if we give people enough money, they'll want these opportunities. But what I hear you saying is that really – this decentralization or the movement from HRC distributing people to commanders attracting talent has changed that paradigm. So that purpose and, you know, being able to describe what you're going to give to the Army or what you're going to get back really matters. Do you think, do you agree with that? Yeah. And I, and I want to be careful not to say that incentives don't matter. You know, if something is important to the Army, then the Army should show that in ways other than, you know, in ways that are they're meaningful, especially if you impose a, uh, an unusual cost on someone. For example, uh, when you uh, move your family up to <coughs> Alaska, you have to purchase a bunch of equipment to maintain your vehicle. You have to bunch, buy a bunch of extreme cold weather clothing for your families. You know, there ought to be a compensation for that. Um, when you move to a remote and isolated post like Fort Irwin. You know, it, it makes sense that there should be some kind of compensation. But again, uh, the folks we are looking for are folks who are excited about the mission and, and are grateful for that uh, compensation because it kind of makes it a better sell for their families. And, and, and that's the balance we want to achieve. But what I'm really looking for uh, is the person who's excited about the mission. Yeah, the incentives, <clears throat> the monetary incentives are necessary but not sufficient. Okay, so, so I'd like to pivot now then to a little bit about your specific hiring tactics or how you as the commander in these roles initially with the SPAP and now more with AIM, how you prepare for the market. What guidance are you giving to your staff about how to prepare for the upcoming movement cycle or even the one that just closed out? Yeah, absolutely. The first thing you've got to do is you've got to see uh, the supply and the demand side. Um, and so uh, on, the, on the demand side, you know, uh, obviously for, for the HR professionals in here, um, you know, you've got to make sure that your MER is straight and that we, we look uh, on the officer side, you, you know exactly what vacancies you're going to have. You make appropriate predictions about who's going to be extended in command, who's going to, you know, who's going to defer uh, certain um, uh, officer schooling opportunities, uh, what, what family plans are out there. So you've got to be able to see the MER with the appropriate resolution that you can properly forecast <coughs> your demand. Um, and, and the one consistent message we've heard from HRC is once the market's locked, the market's locked. And so you've got to go in up, up front. You can't come in later and say, oh, I, I need another, uh, you know, AG major uh, once the market is open because they're, they're not going to change it. So being able to see that in sufficient time, and we're really talking nine months out. So we're doing this now very much for the summer of 22. The second piece is you've got to see the, uh, the supply side. Um, and so once you identify your MER, 
and you know here are the key billets that I'm looking for, then you know a, a competent G1 has got all the access that they need to look across the Army and see who is available, who meets those skill sets uh, at the same time. Um, and so now you've got a relatively a finite list. It's a long list, but a finite list of potential people that could come to your installation during the next assignment cycle. Then the real work begins. And what we are doing uh, here at the National Training Center is standing up um, a talent management recruiting team. Uh, it will be like an additional duty. We're calling it, you know, the tax center for senior leaders. You know, it'll surge during uh, during periods, particularly when this, uh, the uh, the zero two series market opens up. Uh, it'll surge, uh, and they'll be responsible for matching up that supply against demand. And there's a lot of things we can do for this. So, for example, I have the unique advantage at Fort Irwin that I have 4,000 to 5,000 prospective recruits come here every month. Um, we have traditionally put them down in the Dust Bowl, uh, in the Ruba, and, and uh, limited access uh, to, uh, uh, to the community. What we're going to do is be a lot more uh, thoughtful about that. And as we do this analysis, identifying that population set, those who might be available to come to this, uh, to be, uh, you know, to join our team uh, the next year, and then bring those individuals up post-rotation uh, uh, and give them essentially a, a college tour. Um, so it'll start off with a briefing at our big conference area, uh, and then we'll assign them a sponsor. And if that particular officer uh, you know, might have an interest in what the, the Child Development Center looks like, then their sponsor can take them to the Child Development Center. If they're interested in the elementary schools, they can do that. They can tour the housing. They can kind of see what's available. So we're going to take advantage of that population we have here. That's just one small piece. The next is going out and actually uh, uh, traveling to installations and helping to recruit uh, those uh, talented leaders that we find in that analysis. And uh, we're working on a plan to do that as well, um, as we, since uh, particularly our operations group draws a lot of its talent from uh, BCTs across the Army, is sending our key leaders out to do some of that recruiting for us. Yeah, that's really interesting, sir, because we certainly hear a lot about the importance of the S1s and your personnel folks and setting the MER and being able to see and predict as people are going to move, you know, between echelons or PCS. But the your TAC teams or your recruiting teams are really bringing in additional staff sections, right, or helping to spread that load even before the market ever opens. That's a really fascinating way to spread the spread the work out and help make that a manageable load. Let me say something about that. I'm going to I'm going to draw a, a, probably a pretty poor metaphor, but it, it it just gets us thinking. If you remember in Iraq as the war really started kicking uh, into a counterinsurgency, we all realized that our companies were undermanned to do the intel collection and management that they needed. So we created the COIST team, right? So what we did is, out of hide, uh, using our existing MTO, we created a analysis cell that could do some of the essential thinking that was needed um, to e effectively prosecute a, a counterinsurgency. So the great thing about the Army is we have the agility to change our organization to adapt to the problem at hand. And I think success in, in, uh, in dealing with this is you have got to create, you know, the, the equivalent of a COIST team. You've got to create uh, a, a cell within your organization that is thinking about and, and planning for and actively, proactively recruiting talent because you're going to get the talent that you deserve. Uh, you're going to get the talent that you fight for. Um, and, uh, and we're all going to be in this competitive business. You know, we wanted an internal competition for labor. Uh, and now we've created it, um, and so uh, uh, if you're not doing it, someone else is. Um, and, uh, and so what we're trying to figure out is what does that team look like? 
Uh, is that a full-time business? Is it an additional duty? Um, again, we're kind of thinking it as an additional duty that surges and then uh, might go to more of a steady state operation during the rest of the year, but surges around uh, the summer assignment cycle. Yeah, so do you see them in largely that like long-term or the deep recruiting front, or do you think they would be a part of your interview process when the market opens as well? Or how, how are you approaching the interview during the market? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, we really want brigade commanders for field grades and, uh, and, and for most company grades doing those interviews or their, you know, or their direct uh, designees. So at the installation level, my goal is matching prospects with requirements. And so that's really what I'm working at at the installation level, is looking across the Army, taking the analytical capability that I have in a G1 staff, looking across the Army and, uh, and finding where those prospects are. Once I have found a prospect, I know a brigade commander has three vacancies for field artillery captains, and I've found five captains who you know, have, have indicated some kind of interest in coming um, and uh, you know, here are their names. Then that interview process, I think, needs to be pushed down the chain of command a little bit more. That makes sense. So at your level, it's um, you know almost like populating the targets or whatnot, and then allowing somebody else to go in and close it. That makes sense. Okay, so then I guess I'm going to ask you to go back a little bit in time and your memory to the SVAB, your time as an SVAB commander, you know, recruiting volunteer volunteers, a very very similar paradigm to what you have now, and what were you thinking about? when you saw candidates apply, at least initially? Like, how did you go from that long list of however many people expressed interest to the, the portion that you are actually going to uh, focus on or expend resources? Yeah, so, um, you know, we had a couple um, what I would describe as screening criteria. And we learned over time to really limit, you know, because you kind of come up with an image in your mind of what you want a prospective candidate to look like for a particular vacancy. and And you find over time that some of these are a bit arbitrary. But the one that we really uh, started out with is is that you have got to be qualified at your current branch, you know, at, at current grade. You have to be branch qualified at current grade. So, for example, if we're going to have you as a major go in and advise an Indonesian colonel as part of our uh, engagement strategy with Indonesia, we want to make sure that your last field exercise was not as a company commander. And so we want someone who has served as a battalion S3, battalion XO, uh, and has got that level of experience uh, so that you can bring that experience to your, uh, to your advising duties. And, and that was a pretty important prerequisite that we, we really tried to, uh, to adhere to. Now, we, we would take, we didn't create an arbitrary number of months. Um, we really just wanted to see, did you have that experience? You know, we wanted to make sure you were fit. Uh, obviously, that's part of the branding of the SFAP. But I wasn't looking for a particular PT score. I was just, you know, are you fit? Are you able to uh, complete a three-event APFT? Are you able to do it at a reasonable standard um, and with reasonable frequency to keep up with your soldiers? Um, so those are the kinds of things that we were looking for kind of at the baseline level. Do you have the right service mindset? One of the great questions, I, I got this from uh, Colonel James Dugan, uh, who is the uh, fourth SFAP commander and recruiting six months ahead of me. And uh, and his first question is, are you willing to mow the grass? Because in an SFAB, you don't have any soldiers. So you quite literally might find yourself as a, as a major mowing the grass in front of your headquarters. And so we were looking for folks who had that kind of service mindset, who would be willing to get out and clean out the Connex on a, on a Tuesday afternoon um, because uh, we're trying to run a, run a brigade with no soldiers in it. But more importantly, as I started doing these interviews, what I found to be the most useful discussion 
and, and the most valuable question is, why'd you volunteer? And I was interested in, were you intrinsically motivated? In other words, was there some transaction? Hey, this is great for my family. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, my wife's got a job in the area and I really want to stay there or, you know, some discussion about the money. That's really not what I was looking for. Great that you, you know, you're trying to help your family. But what I'm looking for is, are you excited about being a part of this team? And are you excited about what you can contribute to our team? And, and that's an important nuance. And after you've done a lot of interviews, you start picking up on that and you see that motivation. Uh, and, and frankly, our, mo our less successful interviews were those who you could kind of tell that they really didn't know much about what an SFAB does, but they were really excited about either moving to or staying at the location uh, where the SFAB was going to be. And, and that's where we said, well, maybe you're probably not volunteering for the right reasons. Yes, sir. And I think you could certainly draw a line between the SFABs and the volunteer process, what we learned in the interviews there, and kind of the, <clears throat> excuse me, the emergence of resumes now in the AIM profile, trying to give commanders more of that information or more of that insight into an individual before you even have to, you know, go through the pain of scheduling an interview. So either hypothetically or if you have any examples of how you've used the resumes or you've seen your peers use resumes, uh, and even almost what would you advise a listener about, you know, from your perspective, what would they see, what you see in a resume? I'm really interested in your avocation, meaning what do you do when you're not getting paid to do your job? And, and what have you used your free time with? And I know, you know, you're a hardworking major and, and you work really, really late and you do a lot of, you know, you do hard army stuff. I kind of got that. But what do you do when you're not doing that? You know, you see folks who are enthusiastic about particular nonprofit activities that they're involved in. You know, it, you can tell, you know, if there's a particular medical cause uh, that a soldier is interested in, uh, those who have, you know, traveled extensively or even done charity work while traveling. To me, those were really interesting. Uh, that showed somebody with a uh, with a real desire to make a difference in this world. And if I, you know, the, the nature of the SFAB mission is I'm going to put you um, uh, potentially on an island in the South Pacific, which we actually did um, for a couple months with very little guidance and tell you help enforce and enhance our partnership uh, with this foreign country. And I'm really not going to tell you how to do that. And so I need someone who is internally motivated uh, and is going to find what needs to be done, not just do what they're told. And so you can start to see that in the, um, you can see that passion in a resume when you look at what those avocations are. Um, and so I found that to be among the most useful. Uh, what What is a turnoff in a resume is when you see, it kind of reads like an OER support form with lots of, lots of achievements, lots of bullets, uh, you know, lots of enumerated comments and you know, I was commended by, you know, some particularly, you know, well-known uh, Army leader because I did a really good job on this. You know, those, uh, I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a lot more interested in what you're passionate about than what other good things people said about you. I can, I can find the good things other people said about you by reading your OERs. Uh, that's, a, that's a really interesting <clears throat> way of uh, parsing out that information and at least helping people think about their resumes, right? Because you know, we always are told that there's kind of a right answer, or if I get number one of X, I will be the, the best. Uh, but those passions, those things that you do when you're not paid as a way to distinguish people is a really interesting insight. So I would like to pivot a little bit, though, and take advantage of your experience with interviews, because most people in the Army have never interviewed or done an interview, certainly not um, a larger group of people and been a hiring official for very many jobs. And so 
you mentioned like your TTPs kind of evolved as you were doing this. How do you approach or prepare for those interviews? What I found to be the most useful was to read something that the person wrote, not what was written about them. Because there's a certain formula for OERs and, and you know, they say certain things. Um, and you might find some, some things that are useful in there. But I'd rather, you know, if you'd written an article, I'd want to read it, uh, at least understand what the thesis is. Clearly, you had some passion for that. Well, tell me why you chose this particular point of view. If you had, uh, you know, if you had those kind of avocations uh, listed on your resume, you know, why are you passionate about this particular thing? And then, uh, again, uh, understanding motivation. Uh, is the big the big question I would try to get to during the interview process. What is driving you to this decision? Why are you wanting to uh, join this organization? And and I think I could I learned an awful lot in that. Uh, the other thing I would I would do, and this is where I do want a little bit of you know I want you to sell yourself, is I would describe what was required of an advisor. I was I would describe the humility, the the tactical competence, and the uh, the the team player aspects that I felt those three were were really really important. Um, in terms of uh, what we expect of advisors. I would lay that out, and then I would ask uh, the, uh, pr- uh, the prospect, tell me why you are uniquely qualified in those three areas for this assignment, and kind of force them to think through. And that's a hard question. Hey, tell me why you're humble. You know, and, and, and you know, that's an awkward one, but, but uh, more, you know, why your tactical competence. I'm looking for someone who's tactical, uh, tactically competent. Give me a reason why I would select you if that's one of the criteria I'm looking for. Uh, I'm looking for a team player. Why would you, you know, uh, be qualified uh, in in that aspect as well? And so that generates, you know, those kind of open-ended questions that gets the uh, the interviewee talking. Yes, yeah, certainly the descriptive questions of like, what have you done in this situation? You know, does actually kind of get around the humility because it allows you to say something you've done rather than like simply tout the attribute behind it or uh, above it. So certainly, yeah, so for for interviews, uh, interviewers, I would strongly encourage any question that begins with the phrase "Tell me about a time when." I think that's so much more useful than you know just kind of a um, uh, you know asking yes or no questions. So tell me about a time when you lost your temper with a peer, and and how did you what did you learn from that? Man, that's a hard question to answer, um, but it's a very revealing question in the way the uh, the person chooses to to answer it. It's a great question that I'm going to steal next time I'm hiring for my position in this coming marketplace. So, you know, let's say you asked 10 candidates, you know, tell me about a time you got mad at your peer and how you recovered. How do you or how would you recommend to your staff that they keep track of all of those answers and then ultimately compare them back? Because you're going to get 10 totally different answers, you know, of varying degrees. People that say like, oh, you know, I happen to get mad about a dropped pencil and I picked it up and to people that tell you a real story about something that was you know stressful and are truly uh, opening up to being vulnerable so how do you or how would you advise your staff to kind of compare those results at the end I, I think we're looking for for introspection is this a uh, uh, an officer who is seeking self-improvement continually and so if tell me about a time when you got mad at a peer and what happened if it's a time when you were you know, aggrieved by somebody, uh, they were wrong, you were right, and and how you finally convinced them and everyone else that they were wrong and you were right. Okay, we're probably not on a good road then. If it was, hey, I lost my temper, um, I uh, I was not thinking empathetically about the broader context of the situation, 
I was being myopic and thinking about my own formation and was what was the best needs for my own company at the time and I wasn't thinking about you know how this was going to affect HHC. We got in a big fight and I realized I need to be more empathetic. I need to understand broader context and think better about how my organization is part of a larger team. Okay, now that's a win because what I've learned is here's a comp- here's an officer who at the company grade learned a, a level of empathy that is going to be so vital as they move up to the field grade level. So I'm looking for introspection. I'm looking for growth and learning, not, hey, one time I had this bad thing happen to me and, uh, you know, kind of this is how I tolerated it. And, um, you know, I, I, if there's no self-blame in there, uh, then there probably was no learning. If I could take kind of this whole arc, right, you start by looking in initially at who's purposes or motivations fit with your unit, right? And then we went to uh, their advocations. Do you think that they have the right internal attributes of self-motivation or kind of whatever fits the job? And then this final part is really that self-learning or that attribute that you're looking at. So those are three distinct uh, characteristics of the person. Do you see it as the commander's role or who do you think... um, would be in charge of then adjudicating how those three traits rack and stack or ultimately comparing people across to create those preference rankings. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a hard thing to establish any kind of uh, empirical process. I, I think it's much more a, um, uh, you know, kind of a sense. And, uh, you know, there are other factors uh, that uh, that influence the decision, you know, uh, the amount of time that this particular officer has available, their their propensity, the likelihood that they're going to be promoted. Um, I mean, let's let's be completely candid here. I mean, OERs matter. Uh, for example, if you're uh, coming to be an, an OC at the at the National Training Center, and and we look at your OERs, and it is clear that it is it is unlikely that you know if we're hiring for a, a major position, it is unlikely that you will have the opportunity to serve. Um, as a in a, a lieutenant colonel CSL position or as a battalion commander based on the paper that's already written, then the question is, you know, as we compare you against your peers, whether or not this is a valuable investment for the Army. Because if we're going to take you out here and teach you all this really valuable maneuver skill set, you know, we want to we see that you've got the potential to, to return that uh, knowledge back to the Army. And so, I mean, that's just a candid uh, reality of, of where we are. And, and so um, that will weigh into it, and then kind of the the more subjective sense of the um, uh, of the interview tend to um, factor in there in a in, in a more subjective way, I guess. Yeah, the art and science of it. Uh, here you're right, sir. So we've talked a lot uh, up here in HQDA about the role of OERs in the marketplace and where who should be privy to that information because. In theory and practice, the OER is about promotion, as you said. Am I likely to make it to lieutenant colonel? And what we're hiring here for is a next job, a specific assignment. And so, you know, for example, I'm a functional area officer. Am I going to get number one of 50 out of an infantry commander who's already looking sideways at me for being a functional area? And so just those OERs can tell a, you know, a misleading story. So how do you think about it, or how do you give guidance about considering OERs uh, in this process? So you you said exactly right. Just those OERs can tell a misleading story. They are part of the story, and if they're not taken in a broader context, they tell a very misleading story. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, and, and uh, General McGee would, would ab- absolutely echo this statement. The information that resulted in my selection as a BCT commander, which was an enormously important uh, decision that the Army made to pick me uh, as a BCT commander, that the actual information that drove that decision would fit on a 3x5 card. It was essentially the first line of the senior raider comment in my last five OERs prior to that time. Does that tell enough about who I am? I, I would argue, and I think the essential thesis of the ATAP program is that it doesn't. And so we are expanding that aperture and adding more information in so we can make a more balanced judgment about an officer. Um, and a, a qualified interviewer should understand the context in which every OER was written. For example, if, uh, if I see an OER that's a, a uh, I, I see an officer with a, with a consistent pattern of very highly enumerated reports, a lot of MQs, and all of a sudden I see an HQ uh, that you know, comes at a surprising time, but the first word in the comments was already selected for battalion command, I know within the context what, exactly what that brigade commander is doing. Uh, the brigade commander is determining that he no longer needs uh, this MQ. Uh, you know, and the same with um, functional areas. You look at population size. You look at who that person was competing against. You know, um, but the more information, the more data-rich environment we have in our HR process, I think the more accurate uh, results we're going to have. Where we will make bad decisions is when we're, we're making enormously important uh, HR decisions based on, you know, a very, very superficial uh, assessment of just one aspect of performance, which is the OER. Yeah, absolutely, sir. So we added in the the user agreement this year for the marketplace that units can use OERs as an additional source of information, but that that shouldn't be your screening criteria on the front end. Like, only had four or five uh, most qualifieds, you're out the door. No, like, but if we need to, if we get to the end, we're deciding between people, we need to ensure that, you know, they're, neither is at risk for promotion, then then that's exactly where we want to use that additional information. And let me make a comment on that. So um, one of the concerns about creating an internal marketplace when we first uh, were testing this a couple years ago was that it would create uh, rampant um, cronyism, parochialism, and, and everybody would hire their brother-in-law. Um, and so we, we developed this initially when we did the pilot, which was called Green Pages. It was based on an IBM uh, project called Blue Pages. And, uh, and so, you know, the, the, the folks who were doing this went back to Blue Pages and, and, uh, and looked at what they were doing. And we saw the same in Green Pages. In fact, the result is the exact opposite. People hire their brother-in-law or they hire, you know, people who've got the same, you know, badges on their uniform as them or the same, you know, the same kind of pedigree. They hire people that look like them as a heuristic, as a shortcut, um, based on biases when they have a lack of information. What you find is the more information you provide to interviewers, the less likely they are uh, to hire people based on superficial attributes. So if I know nothing about you other than uh, your the front side of your ORB, all I know is the assignments you've had before, I'm going to infer some things based on your unit of assignment, based on the kind of schools you've gone to, uh, and, and based on the, uh, uh, the assignments that you held. And I'm going to make some, uh, some determinations about your talent based on some very biased views that I might have, you know, based on my own story. If you expand that aperture to the much more broader context that we have today, uh, then what you find is that kind of cronyism, I think, actually goes down. So as long as we keep this a data-rich environment, 
um, will mitigate against cronyism. Now, human beings are still human beings, and they're still subject to their own biases. But the more information you inject into the system, uh, the less likely we are to revert back to our biases. Yeah, certainly with cronyism, certain I would say that I think the hypothesis holds true for diversity, equity, and inclusion as well. That there were some concerns that an open marketplace would lead to pooling or pockets of minorities or of women ending up because that's all they could get hired to. Uh, and what we're trying to do, as you said, is provide that additional information to get around the heuristics and see that people, regardless of these attributes, um, have the talents to fit in a job. And we haven't seen any indication yet that, you know, black people only hire black people or women only hire women or any of those concerns um, that were initially there with the decentralized control for DEI. Well, I, I think it is useful, and, and of course the, the Army has recently made the decision to go away with, uh, with uh, photos and boards for good reason. The data is, is um, you know, unrefutable uh, that over time, over thousands of files, people are more likely to, to, to rate. There is a statistical difference in the rating you give to people of your same gender or race. I mean, that, that is a, an irrefutable fact backed up by thousands of data points. And so we have to recognize that. Um, and I think what's useful in that, I mean, that bias will remain. And what we've got to do is, is help commanders to see themselves. Um, and as they make many, many decisions, because I think there's very few that do that intentionally, um, but as they, uh, is, is to constantly hold them accountable and say, hey, you know, you, you need to recognize that, that you might be drifting here unintentionally. But the vast majority of hiring officials are just looking for the best talent for their formation. And the more information we give them to describe that talent, the more accurate and uh, they're going to hire and the more diverse population they're going to bring in. Absolutely. So and I think as the TTPs, like you mentioned, with your hiring teams develop and are formalized, will, you know, help. This learning curve is very steep for us right now, but it will level off and we will have people that have grown up hiring people being hired by interview boards. And we'll start to see uh, TTPs for those biases to be identified and ultimately mitigated. So I absolutely agree with you on that. But I do want to, I guess, take a step back from that and ask, but what about the automatic disqualifiers? We've talked about a lot of ways to distinguish yourself for the positive. What are just the, uh-uh, I'm not going to invest any more time in this person's resume, this person's interview. What cuts you off? Um, you know, there there are... Most often, and we see this on the NCO side because uh, just in the SFAB, um, you know, there are certain skill sets that you just got to have. Uh, you know, I, I need you to have a certain background in, in, in uh, certain areas. For example, if you are for hiring you to be a, um, an E7 in the SFAB, I think by and large, uh, if you have no uh, platoon sergeant time, you know, that it's going to be, hey, come back to us after you've been an experienced platoon sergeant. Because the kind of jobs we need you to do for us, we need you mentoring foreign armies from the perspective of an experienced platoon sergeant. And, you know, and the same on the officer side. If you, if you haven't commanded a company, for example, it's really hard to make you an advisor team leader. Yeah, and so there, there's been a few exceptions to that, but they've been very, very rare. And for very specific reasons, we're, we're looking for a certain expertise. I would say here at the NTC, if you're going to be an OC, uh, we need to see that you've led at the echelon for which you will be uh, OCing, uh, because you're, you know, you're you're supposed to be a mentor there. That's one of the few uh, <laughs> readiness requirements that we've uh, maintained through all of this is that, um, you know, the person has to be objectively qualified for the position, or HRC will still maintain that ability to break the match. Um, 
The other one I would say for the SFAB that um, we do uh, the assessment and selection process, or when I served there, um, which was essentially a three-day uh, event. You know, starts off with a PT test, um, goes into some uh, psychometric uh, evaluations, a, a basic uh, MOS proficiency, and then a somewhat stressful team event uh, that forces, um, you know, that, that just gets everybody's uh, uh, body core temperature up, gets them kind of excited, uh, makes them do some hard things as a team, having just gotten to know each other. And then we also billet them together, you know, these teams together, and so they kind of interact throughout this three-day period. The most important thing that comes out of that entire assessment process, it's not your PT score, it's not how you do on the MOS, MOS exam, it's your peer eval after the, uh, the event. What we're looking for is, are you a team player? And when the, when the stress is on, uh, when you're enduring physical hardship, will you think about others before yourself? Um, and that, that tends to be a pretty quick disqualifier uh, because, again, we're not going to put you uh, in, uh, in a team in Thailand for six months uh, if, uh, you know, over the course of a three-day event it became evident to everybody around you uh, that, that you became pretty internally focused. Um, rather than thinking about the greater team. So that, in terms of disqualifications, uh, that is very rarely, uh, a candidate's very rarely considered if they score poorly in that, that team aspect. Yes, sir. So similarly, what advice would you give, or I guess the opposite side, for a unit to be successful in the marketplace? I've heard you talk about, you know, the deliberate resourcing through time, you know, before the market opens, before the MER but also uh, during execution, the purpose-driven sales pitch, being very clear about what you offer to people or what your unit offers to individuals during their career. I've heard you mention like experience-driven interview questions, what name and time you've been mad at your peer. But uh, I guess of those are kind of listening to me tell you, say it back to you, what would your advice to other units be to have equal success in the marketplace? Well, you know, first is, is see the supply and demand. Understand your mirror, understand what's out there, and then look deliberately for individuals and, and see what's available in the market and spend some time really looking at what that population is. Um, and that requires a lot of work. So that leads to the second thing is organize your staff for the problems that you have. Just like during counterinsurgency, we organize with COIS teams. You know, it's painful, and you're taking busy people away from doing important work to work on this problem. But you've got to build that, uh, that infrastructure so that you can produce those leads and reach out to those folks and then engage your chain of command, your leaders, to reach out and do those interviews. I did miss the, the first one, so I appreciate your reemphasis on the MER. Because those setting the conditions will ultimately set the parameters for what your final solution can be. If you put the wrong positions into the marketplace, you're never going to get advertising, even if you can get the four people into an interview, you've got four to choose from instead of 15,000 movers or whatever's in your specific marketplace. So obviously, I'm invested. We're touting a lot of the strengths of ATAP. I guess the first question, what are the weaknesses of the, the current system as the Army's designed it for you? And the second, as you mentioned, commanders can use their staffs to staff around that or to, um, work around that. But those are the two next questions, weaknesses and your, how the commanders can help mitigate it. Yeah, so um, first off, I'm a huge fan 
of the ATAP program. Like I said up front, uh, I just want to reemphasize before I talk about the weaknesses uh, that uh, uh, this is the most important innovation, I think, uh, modernization innovation going on in the Army today. And we'll do more to keep us lethal and, uh, and to ensure we maintain a powerful military deterrent in the 21st century than anything else we're doing on the modernization uh, front. Um, with that said, uh, I command an installation uh, that is pretty important for the Army, uh, that has a very high demand for top talent to maintain America's fighting edge, that happens to be in the middle of the desert, 40 miles from the nearest town. Um, that creates an inherent problem in a preference-based assignment system, um, and that's a tension we deal with every day. Uh, there is absolutely nothing wrong for an officer uh, you know, feeling that they would do better uh, at a broadening assignment in Northern Virginia where their spouse has op- you know, lots of opportunity for employment as compared to an assignment uh, out in the Mojave Desert. You know, we, we want officers that, that love their families and are invested in their families, and we recognize that that is, um, uh, that is an inherent challenge. Here's what's good about that, is that for, for my organization to survive here at Fort Irwin, for us to continue to recruit and retain the top talent that we must have to do the mission that the Army's given us, um, we have got to be serious about quality of life. Quality of life is no longer an extracurricular activity. It's no longer something we do because of, of an altruistic desire to take care of our soldiers. It is existential to our ability to retain top talent. And, uh, you know, businesses have been dealing with this for a long time. But every decision we make, every, uh, uh, every you know, resourcing decision uh, that we follow, how we manage our out-tempo, our the level of predictability we, find, we provide to soldiers and families is directly related to our ability to recruit and retain top talent. So it keeps me accountable. Um, and I'll tell you, I spend an awful lot of time thinking about how do I invest in quality of life. Now, I'll never turn Fort Irwin uh, into, you know, a more, you know there, there are no ski slopes here. The, the surfing... Uh, is uh, is a couple miles away, uh, a couple hours away, certainly more so than in Hawaii. But what we can do is make this a great community by, uh, by investing in that. If there's a flaw in the system, it's how do we tip the market scales appropriately to get the talent where we need it in cases where the mission and the, uh, uh, and the environment don't necessarily generate those effects by themselves. And so that's what we're struggling with, I think. And I think as we learn more about this process over the next few years, we'll get better at it. Yeah, absolutely, sir. uh, It's reminiscent of your comment at the very beginning about necessary but not sufficient to, you know, provide people with purpose. But you've also got to be able to take care of your family as well and ensuring that they have the quality of life programs uh, that they need. So, sorry, I do want to give you the last uh, last word here. So parting comments. What advice would you have either to your peers in command billets, S1 folks on the line? The floor is yours. First thing is the way you treat the soldiers in your organization now is the number one predictor of how well your recruiting process will go. And so, uh, you know, people are talking about your organization every day and they're talking about the way you care for people, uh, the way that your organization cares for people, the way you provide opportunities if you're a senior commander, uh, the, the types of programs, you know, the, the, the capacity of your child development center, uh, you know, the, the things you're doing uh, to, to, you know, uh, the programs you're doing for single soldiers and for families. Uh, you know, people are talking about that every day. And so the best recruiting 
that will ever happen in your organization is not from you because everyone knows you're going to have you know a couple polished talking points it's going to come from the sergeants and junior officers in your formation you got to treat them with respect take care of them and invest in people and everything you do and and if you do that word will travel if you can provide predictability on your training calendar and then provide a firm commitment uh, and stick to that predictability uh, and make sure families know, you know when they're going to have time off and when they're going to be asked to work uh, hard and when holidays are going to be protected and when they won't be, and you have that clear discussion up front, you'll build a level of trust with inside your organization that will serve as the single most important recruiting tool uh, that you have. And so the way you treat your own formation is absolutely vital to your ability to recruit other talent in there. Because ultimately, no one is going to want to sign up for your organization unless they talk to a peer who's already there and says, yeah, you want to come here. Uh, and that's really what you're aiming for, is uh, that, that you reach out to a prospect or, or they, uh, you know, there's a debate on where, they, where they're, you're going to go on their preference list. Uh, and then um, they reach out to a peer and the peer says, this is a great place to work. So that's something we sometimes lose in that is that our, our own soldiers are our best recruiting asset. And then as you look at talent, uh, the last thing, just to recap what I had said earlier, as you look at those who want to come to your organization, um, my advice is look for those who are passionate about your mission and passionate about the team and not just folks who, who might be there for, um, you know, for personal reasons uh, or, um, uh, or you know, desire for some kind of advancement, um, but rather folks who can get excited about, uh, uh, about being a part of the team that you have and the mission you have. On those notes of the importance of soldiers' mission and culture, I think we'll wrap things up. So to our guest, Sir and General Taylor, thank you for being on the show. And to our audience, thank you for joining me today. Please subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. And for more information, visit the Talent Management Task Force website at talent.army.mil. Thanks for joining us today. Talent wins. Winning matters. The Army Talent Management Task Force would like to thank our listeners for tuning in to today's podcast. For more information on Army Talent Management Initiatives, or if you have an idea for a future podcast, please visit our website at talent.army.mil. Don't forget to share with your colleagues.